Bandwidth for Priority One Podcast is brought to you by Playa Escondida. Ever dreamed of visiting Planet Risa? Well, Playa Escondida is the ultimate beach resort excursion. Visit PlayaEscondida.com to book your ultimate vacation getaway. Hi, this is Chase Masterson, and you're listening to PriorityOnePodcast.com. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 140 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded Thursday, September 5th, 2013, live on trekradio.net, and available for download or streaming on Monday mornings at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. And I'm Tony. All right, Tony, what do we have in store for this week? Well, this week we trek out a new science fiction film project entitled R.U.R. with director James Kerwin and actors Kipley Brown and Chase Masterson. Not much going on in Stone News this week, but this is usually the quiet before the storm as we anticipate a new featured episode coming out. Also, we probably won't talk about Legacy of Romulus Dev Blog 40 much, probably not. But we will review this week's patch notes, and we're going to delve into some uh, pretty touchy topics later on in the show. In this episode's Community Spotlight, we introduce you to the voice of Justin Lowmaster, a.k.a. Chivalry Bean. And he'll be introducing you to a new Foundry Mission Spotlight segment. Later in the show, we'll open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming from you, our listeners. Captain Priority One Podcast survives only by your generous real-world donations and Elijah's complete and utter lack of traffic safety regulations. Visit Priority One Podcast and help us reach our monthly goals. With your help, we can help you feel closer to the big conventions with live broadcasts, on-site interviews, and much more. More importantly, keep the site alive by contributing to the cost of running this volunteer production. Visit PriorityOnePodcast.com for more information on how you can help keep this show moving forward. Well, let's get ready to trek out R.U.R. with director James Kerwin and actors Kipley Brown and Chase Masterson. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Joining us on this episode of Priority One Podcast is James Kerwin, Chase Masterson, and Kipley Brown. Thank you for joining us this evening. Hi, it's great to be here. Hi, thank you, yeah. James, let's start with you. Your production company is called Helicon Arts. Now here's a multiple choice question for you. Is Helicon A, the home planet of classic Asimov protagonist Harry Seldon, B, a mountain in Greece, or C, a brass instrument in the tuba family? All of the above. Oh, good answer. (laughs) Good answer, sir. It is also a specific type of wave in physics that permeates matter. I didn't put that one on there because three choices is enough. (laughs) So which one did you name your production company after? The home of the muses in Greek mythology. The mountain in Greece. Yes. So your production company is named after your inspiration. Absolutely. Very nice. Well, Helicon released a sci-fi film noir called Yesterday Was a Lie in 2010, which, James, you wrote and directed. So tell us how you got started in the world of science fiction. How did you get started and wind up writing and directing your own films? Actually, let me give you one correction. Helicon produced the film. Entertainment One released it. So we're not a distribution company. We're a production company. And they picked up the film and released it. But, yeah, you know, everybody asks me that question. And it's hard to answer. I guess I've always been a bit of a science fiction geek. I've always loved Doctor Who and Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all of those. Battlestar, you know. I didn't make a conscious decision to go into directing science fiction, but it's a genre that I find to be extremely compelling because it's the one genre of literature that allows you to examine the human experience from the outside. 
Chase, many of our listeners already know you from your role as Lita on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. In Yesterday Was a Lie, you were credited as a producer as well as portraying a significant character in the film, also doing some amazing vocal work. Talk to us about juggling your various roles in the production. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> it was tough. It was really, really tough. You know, low-budget filmmaking is hard for any producer and it's hard for any actor really i mean that's just the, the the basic truth of it and doing both was it was kind of a living hell while it was happening there was a lot to do <laughs> all the time and i remember like the week well the day that i was um, supposed to go in and record the vocals finally after the film was shot and after everything was done i was losing my voice because i'd spent so much time on the phone negotiating our sound deal so it was incredibly hands-on work from finding and negotiating locations and wardrobe and props, helping casting, but the film needed it. And James's work as a director and as a writer was definitely something that deserved to be made. And I loved the role that I had and I just, I wanted to see the film made and it seemed to be the only way. I think it really was at that point. You know, there was just a need for a producer to step in and do it. So I did. So, Kipley, in Yesterday Was a Lie, you played a very strong female role. When playing these these types of roles, where do you draw your inspiration? I look at several things. Well, I would have to say that the strong female archetype is something that I, I always sort of look to my mom first. She's a person who overcame a lot of difficulty and adversity in her life and always did it with a sense of humor and a smile and just a will of iron. And I've always admired that. And so I always think of her. But Hoyle was sort of a, albeit strong character, a hard character in terms of, you know, not a fluffy, soft, warm and cuddly character, but someone that's got hard edges and can't open up and can't relate and be emotional and connected to people. And that's not like my mom. And that was maybe the hardest part was playing a strong woman, but also a woman who's closed. And people watched and looked at the people that seemed to be walking around with their shutters closed, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And what that might mean. And we've all been there, too, you know, so drawing from personal experience. You mentioned previously you were a bit of a sci-fi aficionada. What draws you to the genre as an actress? I'm first drawn to the genre as, a, as just a human being, because I've loved it even before I started acting. And the reasons why I love it as a genre are the same reasons I love to act in it. Basically, I don't love all science fiction. I love good science fiction. And that can be said, I'm sure, for everyone. But the qualities about science fiction, like, I guess the themes in the stories of science fiction are the same ones that have been explored since the dawn of storytelling, you know. But what sci-fi does is it takes what is familiar to us as human beings, you know, fear and love and hope and vengeance, passion, the need to aspire to be heard to express ourselves, all of that. And it places them in a brand new or unfamiliar context. So I guess it's kind of like that painting in your house that you walk by every day and you see it and you stop noticing it. But when you see the same painting somewhere else, new or unexpected, it's like you see it again for the first time. And I feel like that's what sci-fi can do. And it's the scope is limitless of the new contexts you can place human stories in. And as an actor, it's a new way to explore that same condition from the point of view of the actor. It's just fascinating. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, you actually played the role of Taylor in an episode of Enterprise called The Forgotten. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that episode? How, you know, how did you like being a part of now this Star Trek canon and entering into that specific genre of science fiction? I'll tell you a funny story about the audition. I am a Star Trek fan big time and I love the next generation and when I got the audition for Enterprise anything in the Star Trek you know was so exciting so 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 exciting for me but I had also heard that if you express too much love of Star Trek if you reveal that you're a big fan they're hesitant to cast you because in the past things have disappeared from the set and ended up on eBay you know they they if you're a super fan they're kind of like well maybe we don't want to cast her so I played it really cool during the auditions, like, you know, Star Trek, what's that? And then when I got called back for the final callback, 
They didn't tell me this, but LeVar Burton, who played Jordy in Star Trek The Next Generation, was directing the episode, and I walked into the room being all cool as a cucumber, and there's LeVar Burton sitting there right in front of me, and oh my god. Woo! I barely kept it together. I almost freaked out on him. A happy freak out, mind you, but... Right, right. Woo! Yeah, that was just unexpectedly walking in and seeing someone that whose face you know so well and isn't part of this thing that you love, and then suddenly you have to audition for them. But he was great, and I managed to keep my cool, and being indoctrinated, even in this small way, into the Star Trek canon is probably my favorite acting accomplishment. <laughs> and the character Jane Taylor, crewman Jane Taylor, was interesting for Enterprise because it was season three when they really started to explore the darker sides of war, you know, with the Zindi and what the cost of war is, and as, as um, many of you know, I don't want any spoilers, but if you haven't seen the series yet, but the um, engineer Tripp's sister dies in an attack. And my character became sort of the proxy for the loss of his sister. I worked beneath him in engineering and I got killed during a Zindi attack and he has to write a letter to my parents informing them of my death and he can't remember who I am. And I appear to him as a ghost or in a dream, whatever your interpretation is. And I basically say, why can't you remember me? I did all these things. You said I'd make a great chief engineer and you can't remember me. And it was a reckoning for him. And it was great to have that kind of a dramatic scene. I would have loved anything, but you know, saying, you know, shields up would be fun. <laughs> but being able to also have a dramatic scene was, woo, right. was exciting. And some people, I don't know, maybe some true Star Trek trivia experts would disagree, but I think I might be the only red shirt in history to speak after death. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And I'm That's slightly more than a red shirt. I mean, I have a backstory, and I have a first and a last name, Jane Taylor. So theoretically, it's not the traditional red shirt, but I was a crewman second class, which is a red stripe on my uniform, and I was, you know, an underling, and I died before you ever met me, even. <laughs> Fascinating. That is an interesting bit of trivia. We're going to have to pose it out to our listeners out there to see if it is in fact true. We'll have to dig deep and find out. But your latest project is RUR. And this is another very ambitious project from a history of science fiction standpoint, at least. James, if you would, please tell us what RUR stands for. And why is it up there with Journey to the Center of the Earth and War of the Worlds? Well, RUR was a Czech play that was started in 1919 by a Czech writer named Karl Chopek. And the abbreviation RUR stands for a Czech phrase that means Rossum's Artificial Workers. And the play is basically about a society that was set 50 years in the future from when he wrote the play, so that would be probably 1969, somewhere about there, in which there is an entire, basically, race of artificially born people, people who are made in laboratories rather than in utero, and they have no civil rights. The countries of the world basically have all agreed that they can be used, they can be bought, they can be sold, they can be used as slaves, they can be used as soldiers, they can be used as whatever you want. And the play was very popular at the time that it was written, and it was translated into English and first performed in the English-speaking world in the uh, early 30s, I believe, and by the time that it was brought over here, the abbreviation RUR had become rather famous as a title, so they wanted to keep the same abbreviation, but they didn't have any English words that would stand for Rossum's Artificial Workers, so they changed it to Rossum's Universal, and then the last R, they used the Czech word for worker, which is robots, and so it became Rossum's Universal Robots, and that is how the word robot became introduced into the English language, meaning an artificial person. But interestingly, it did not mean a mechanical person at all. It meant a flesh and blood slave. Well, how far along is the production of RUR? At this point, we have shot a teaser for it called RUR Genesis. It's a seven-minute teaser, and it's going to be available for free online for people to view this fall. Probably a few weeks from now, actually, it'll be going public. And we're also using it to kind of raise buzz and raise interest in the feature that we have in development right now with some financing companies. And interestingly, James has chosen the 60s in the style sort of a Barbarella 
I ran around in a black like cat burglar suit most of the time. I mean, the original RUR play had some very humorous elements in it, and we didn't want to get rid of that and just make it this really dark future Blade Runner kind of thing. Um, so we set it in this retro 1969 world in which all the girls run around looking like Barbarella. So it's got that fun playfulness and sexiness to it, but it's also right as you're getting into that world thinking, oh, this is fun and sexy and cool, it hits you over the head with these really interesting concepts about consciousness and the nature of what it means to be human. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, I've been sucked into this rather serious character piece. So it's a combination of the different tropes. It's pretty yeah. indicative of the 60s with the playfulness and the whole devil-may-care attitude giving way to the harsh realities and the civil rights issues and the sexy playfulness of we, don't, we just don't have a care in the world, anything to worry about. When are we going to see this? When are we going to see the release? Well, the short film, Are You Our Genesis, should come out within the next couple of weeks. It should be out by mid-September, and it will be available on RURfilm.com, which is our website. It will be free for fans to watch online on the Internet. Then, you know, knock on wood, keeping your fingers crossed, this feature that we have in development right now, hopefully will be greenlit, and uh, we'll, we'll be making it within the next couple of years. The feature has not been a formally greenlit yet, so a lot is writing on this teaser. Well, you sold us. Sold me, anyway. There you go. I'm told. <laughs> Part of the reason this script is so good is a reason that a lot of times is overlooked when you say strong characters. As Kipley started to say, there's all sorts of different kinds of strength, and quiet strength doesn't have to be like Kira Norris or anybody else who wears it on her sleeve. There are different types of quiet strength. It takes a certain strength to say nothing and a certain strength to do nothing. And there's just all sorts of things that go on in the human psyche, which is extremely important and sometimes lost in this flashbang science fiction lens flare world that we seem to be living in, in terms of sci-fi features. That's just really important to keep in mind. Chase is absolutely right that strength comes in many forms and sometimes the strength that sneaks up on you is the most powerful of all. One of the beauties of this piece is that there are certain types of strength in characters that you don't expect and it's, it's extremely character-driven, along with a lot of great action and great sexy stuff. Um, it's, there's a lot of internal real beauty. We want to thank all three of you for joining us tonight, Kipley and Chase and James. It was great having you guys on. Yesterday Was a Lie, available to rent or buy on iTunes right now, and we look forward to your release of the film version, eventually, fingers crossed, of one of the foundational works of science fiction, R.U.R. Thanks to all three of you. Yay, thanks, guys. It was fun. Yeah. Discover something you think the rest of our listeners would enjoy hearing about? Send them over to us via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now let's check out what happened in Stow News. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. We've got another Lobby sale coming to you this week. The Temporal Destroyer and Gemadar Dreadnought Carrier are 40% off until server maintenance starts Thursday, September 12th, 2013. That's right, boys and girls, for the low, low price of only 480 Lobby, you can drive off the lot in a brand new 2409 Mobius Talvoth or whatever the Dominion calls that big, gigantic thing they drive around. But wait, there's more! Almost all items, including the Photonic Tactical Officer in the Lobby Store, are still being discounted by 15% until server maintenance on Thursday, September 12th. You're still paying full price for the new Alachi items and the items that cost fewer than 10 Lobby. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I present Elijah's Ranty Time. Excuse me while I go get my soapbox. <laughs> I like to consider myself a bit of a ship person, at least an escort person, I will say that. I love my escorts. But I'm not ready to just start shelling out money left and right for a ship, especially the low-buy store. I very seldom, seldom look at the low-buy store. So I'm looking at the Temple Destroyer, and I'm thinking, wow, this escort has some pretty nice stats. So in researching the ship, the Temple Destroyer, one could argue that it's comparable to the Jem'Hadar bug ship. Most specifically, what caught my attention was the ship's bridge officer layout. You've got four powers coming out of commander, three powers coming out of lieutenant commander, and two powers coming out of a universal lieutenant slot, which can make for a 
very, very powerful escort if you slot it correctly. And it really attracted me. So I go, gee, it's on sale. So I start doing some math because, as I mentioned earlier, I very seldom go out looking for low B purchases, right? So I don't have a large collection of low buy crystals. So I'm doing the math and I visit Stowiki and I figure, okay, so it's 480 low B. How many low B generally do you get per box? Yeah. Head on over to Stowiki. Stowiki reports that you can get anywhere between four low B and 50 low B. Who is getting 50 low B ever consistently? So, I mean, I'm not doubting nobody. Stow Wiki's numbers, but 50? It happens. It's mathematically possible. It's mathematically possible. Definitely not consistently, though. Here's the math. Let's say you only get four. You get the minimum every time you open a box. You would have to spend over $100 on this sale to take advantage of the sale to get the Mobius Temporal Destroyer. Statistically, you probably not have to do that because statistically you are likely to hit a few of those higher level lobby things but i mean to be guaranteed yeah you might have to buy 120 lock boxes to hit that correct you're right your math is holding up here's where it breaks down 480 low buy to get this ship currently at its sale at four low buy per boxes you'd end up having to open about 120 boxes okay at 112 zen per key if you take advantage of the 10 pack you would need yeah 12,656 zen, which is over $100, 100 US dollars. Now, on the other side of this, let's say you were the luckiest person in the world and you get 50 low buy per box. Again, who the heck gets that? Nobody. You would only spend about $20 for the ship. So at 50 low buy per box, you would only need to open about nine boxes, again, at $112 per master key in the 10 pack. So that's about 1,080 Zen, which is under 20 bucks, okay? First of all, those two numbers are insanely apart. Over 100 and then $20. Mm-hmm. Where's the middle class here? I wanna know. I have a family, I go to school, I have a job, but I don't have 100 beans to just throw out so I can get this temporal destroyer. So the argument is, well, spend time playing because you can earn the ship by playing the game. Yes, understood. But if you don't have the time, how are you going to earn that? Is it strange to think that perhaps it would benefit Perfect World and Cryptic as a whole for a more steady monthly income from me? Like, okay, well, the ship is maybe $50. Okay, I'm maybe more likely to spend $50 or $20 more consistently in buying an item than spending $100, let's say, let's say I were to bite and spend $100 on Lobby Box, which I'm not, sweetie. I'm not doing that, sweetie. <laughs> Let's say I were to spend and drop the 100 bucks on that Lobby. I'm only going to do that once, maybe every six to eight months. No. So last week, we posed the question, do drop rates need a once-over? This week's question, how badly do you think the economy of Star Trek Online needs a good, hard redo? What games have you played? What other MMOs have you played that are free to play, but seem to have a more fair, balanced, and successful economy? Let's just face this. Online multiplayer games, almost all of them, are just masked random number generators. When I fire my phaser banks on my Odyssey-class starships, I am telling my computer system to roll a bunch of random numbers with various modifiers, depending on the weapons on my ship, the kind of ship I have, the power levels, all that kind of stuff to see if I actually blow up the bad guy. Cryptic is just coming up with a variety of different ways to give you the opportunity to roll more random numbers. That's all that is. And they have determined that it is better for their business to offer you the chance to roll a bunch of high-stakes random numbers repeatedly rather than let you just give them five bucks a month. All right, hold on a second here, because you're talking about the random drop, like we were talking last week about the dreadnought, the ships. I'm talking about low buy, right? This is a currency within a currency within a freaking currency. The low buy, going from four to 50, that's a huge, huge range. I understand the ships. I understand the items within the lockboxes. But the low buy crystals, which are used to then purchase other devices and other things in the game, other higher-end equipment... That 4 to 50 range, that's yeah. an insane, insane range. 
Skiffy jumped in the chat room with some numbers, and these look right to me, so I'm going to quote him. I don't know if they're right or not, but they, they look right to me. The average low buy yield on a box is 5.3367, meaning that over time, if you opened 100 lockboxes like you were threatening to do, you'd average out to about five and a quarter, five and a third. So Cryptic has decided that if you give them a buck 25 or a buck 12 with your 10-pack discount, they'll give you five and a quarter, five and a third low beat. That's what they've decided, that that's the right amount of low to hand out to people. You're still spending then close to $100 on this ship from the low-buy store, which is just insane. That's their math. Terry Lynn in the chat room said that she stores the low crystals on the side when she opens them up as she's looking for duty officer packs. I did the same. I was just collecting these low-buy crystals up until this sale, okay? And I was like, oh, crap, now I can use the low-buy crystals for something. These items still feel very out of reach to me, even when they're on 40% off. But why does it feel so out of reach for me? Why not get a more steady income from the middle class player? This type of sale has got me to realize that there seems to be at least PWE and in turn Cryptic almost see two types of players. The player that doesn't pay a dime and has to grind for everything or the player that's going to drop close to 200 bucks for a ship in one fail swoop and then pay another 200 bucks when they pop out another ship three months later. Yes. Elijah, you don't need to go back to school because you have just derived the business model for free-to-play games. That is exactly what their model is. I don't believe that all free-to-play models are this extreme, which is why I pose the question, what games have our listeners played that seem to have a more balanced and successful free-to-play economy? Because there has to be a middle ground. There needs to be something that's going to get me. I would like to call myself the middle class player. Go ahead, coin it. I won't charge you for it. But something that <laughs> that is going to be more attractive to me and make me perhaps more willing to have a conversation with my wife and say, sweetie, can I have $20 this month so that I could buy this thing from the C-store, please? I'm going to go with you on this one, and this is where I'm going to follow you. They need to better display the value you're getting. They need to be more transparent with the relative values of your time to your cash to your, I'm going to say, use of their random number generator system. Because, you know, I can play different kinds of missions in the game depending on what my preferences are. Maybe I like DOS, maybe I like STFs, maybe I like Foundry. I can play some different things, but the reward levels are wildly different. And that's my perspective. And I think one of their main goals, and nobody gets this right, is trying to balance out the player population of what are people playing the most and what are they earning from that, what are people not playing so much, and what are they earning from that, and trying to make it so it doesn't really matter what you play so as long as you're getting about the same level of reward on everything. And then when they have a sale, they basically say, if you play this type of game and do these types of things you will earn outsized reward for the time you spend and the number of random number generator rolls you roll. And that's where my comments on the economy were last week, is that some of this stuff doesn't seem right to me. It seems a little out of whack. So I'm going to go with you on that. They need to do a better job of communicating to the players, look, if you're going to spend this time in the game and do these kinds of missions, these are the kinds of rewards you're going to get. And it doesn't matter where you're playing or what you're doing. You can count on about this kind of reward for your time and this kind of reward for your skill. You can count on that. And then when we have a sale, that's going to directly impact the amount of virtual stuff you can get from your time and sometimes your cash. And you can make that calculation, Mr. Consumer. Are you going to be one of the 90% of the people who play this game and don't give us a dime? Or are you going to jump over just this once into the 10% of the people that do play the game and do give us money? You can decide, player. Here's the math. You pick. I think that we're at a point that they just can't... I really hope they don't add some new economy. No, they can't. No more currencies. Dear God, no more currencies. It makes my middle-class head spin. Exactly. It obscures the value communication. People cannot make a good decision about where their time in gaming entertainment will be better spent. Well, on that note, we've got a cosmetic fleet project, the Dilithium Mine, Legacy of Romulus, devlog number 40. Content lead Charles Gray checks in with... What else? Another cosmetic upgrade for your dilithium mine. This one is called Center of Commerce. If you chip in your 200,000 dilithium, you will see extra ships flying around your dilithium mine space map. 
and that's it. Moving on, we've got this Foundry Spotlight. Last week's Spotlight mission was Salvage by Shamrock Duke for level 41 and over KDF characters. The mission summary reads as follows. Long-range scans show a derelict Borg cube drifting into Klingon space. The High Council has sent you to investigate and gather any salvageable technology. Apparently, the Borg have also been derelict in paying the electric bill because the author advises you to bring a flashlight that you get from the Davidian-featured episode, What Lies Beneath. We've also got some patch notes that dropped today. Hive Onslaught, the space STF that was revamped in one of the recent season releases. They have increased the time it takes for vessels to enter combat after the initial cutscene, so you don't get jumped by all the cubes that are floating around. Also, captains are no longer targeted by the lance weapons from the Unimatrix vessels when they are affected by the under-the-guns infliction that they put up on you. If you're further than 20 kilometers away from the vessel, if you're using full impulse power, or if you're cloaked. So you're not going to get smacked by that those V'ger lances that will basically one-shot you. Uh, also on the Into the Hive ground STF, the door to the Queen's chambers will open once the Queen is dead to give respawn players a chance to get their loot. And the floor hazard will no longer kill players during cutscenes. So, yay for not being killed when you can't do anything about it. Hooray for that. Also, the Foundry got some love. They resolved an issue in the user-generated content feature. When you were trying to preview your maps after editing, it would take forever to load the preview maps. That's finally been fixed, apparently. So go back in there, authors. Get back to your uh, missions. It won't take you a day and a half just to see if you put the trigger in the right spot. I want to add one thing. I am not ungrateful for the fact that they have put the Lobby store on sale. I am not ungrateful to that. I am very grateful to that. We have a special guest coming in to talk about Foundry with us today. Terry Lynn Scholl, everyone, of G&T Show. Hey, Terry. Hey, guys. How you doing? Okay, Terry, I want to ask you a question, okay? I sure. got a lot of heat from last week's episode, okay? Because in last week's episode, I had said that... I don't know that Star Trek Online is going to invest the time into developing the Foundry as people want it to be developed. Partially because, one, it's not a moneymaker, at least not in any way that they've been able to introduce for it to generate money. But two, that... Let me see how I could phrase this. It is hard for me to get into fan fiction because it's not canon. That's not to say that there isn't good fan fiction because I did say that last week that there is fantastic fan fiction, things that I have caught and have caught my attention. And I've been like, man, this is really, really good. What can you say to somebody like me who has a hard time getting into fan fiction because it's not quote-unquote canon? Now, for any genre, not just Star Trek, but for anything. First and foremost, when it comes to actual fan fiction, I don't think any of us would ever, especially those of us who write it, would ever argue that there isn't a stigma attached to it because there is let's face it there's some really awful awful stuff out there right without a doubt it's very difficult as a user to use the foundry and wade through tons of really low quality stuff and what one person thinks of as quality is also very different from what another person consists or thinks of as quality. Where my writing style for my Star Trek fan fiction is a very different from, say, Sam Redfeather who writes the Gibraltar stuff. The hardest part for you, and my best advice to you, is give it a few more shots, find somebody that you like, and then have them refer you to somebody who writes like they do or have somebody refer you to somebody who creates a foundry mission like they do it's all word of mouth and until we get some kind of a search engine in the foundry that allows us to identify and to peg what authors would consider their stuff to be it would be even easier if when you're you know filling out oh say the initial form when you as an author are there say you have a, a selection oh. of 10 yeah. little boxes that you would check off my fan fiction is listed at astrofanfic.com and when i put in a new story i have to give it its is it TNG? Is it alternate universe? Is it expanded universe? What characters does it have in it? Does it involve a character death? Is it slash? And then that way people who want to read it can go, oh, I can go straight to this category and read everything in that category. Fan fiction has a problem with feedback. 
you, Terry, are in a community of fanfic writers. You yes. trade work. You read each other's stuff. Do you take the feedback? That's how you, yeah. as a writer, improve. The only way you can improve is to be able to listen to and take to heart the criticism that you receive from others. And the fan fiction community, of course, has been around literally for decades. And it's huge. It's monstrous. And it keeps getting bigger with every fandom out there it just grows and grows and grows and I can tell you right now just from the experience that all of us even you Elijah have had in playing Foundry Missions and having the multitude now of really great podcasts that are playing Foundry Missions are reviewing Foundry Missions and are helping each other out especially all of those that are involved with Starbase UGC a lot of authors really have improved by leaps and bounds. They're telling great stories. A lot of them have wonderful touchstones to canon Star Trek. The, the beautiful thing is, though, about Star Trek Online is they're dealing technically, for purists, of course, Star Trek Online itself isn't considered canon. So the world's a little bit more open, and you have to kind of leave yourself open to that going, OK, well, I'm playing in a different world here, and I'm having fun with it. And you can take that to heart and use that when you're playing Foundry Missions. Honestly, having this discussion has made me want to go in and play more Foundry Missions. Because, you know, I remember when first playing Star Trek Online and first seeing the Foundry, there were several missions that were phenomenal, you know? And I'm wondering now if perhaps authors are finding themselves locked down with clay that they can no longer mold. Let's face it, not a lot of changes have been made to the Foundry in the past year. And there is a group of people mm. who have evidence, I would have to agree with them, that the Star Trek Foundry community could be considered the redheaded stepchild to Neverwinter. And a lot of the focus has been put on the Neverwinter Foundry because it's such an integral part of that game. Well, Elsa, there's a catalog. You, know, you can go on Netflix and you can identify season seven, episode four of whatever you know series you're looking at, and you can say, well, your one box of dialogue contradicts this thing I saw right there. So, therefore, your whole story is crap, and I don't want to read it or see any more of it. I quit. I've had a couple <laughs> of pieces of feedback along those lines. But I do want to make clear, and I tried to make this as clear as I could last episode, was that... When it comes to fan fiction, yes, there are several, several amazing things that I have thoroughly enjoyed, from films to comics to books. Although I'm not a big book reader, I'm not going to lie, I'm not huge on, on reading. But when it comes to films and even audio dramas have been fantastic that I've listened to. I think for me, though, when it comes to the Foundry, is not only is it not canon, but I've played some missions that completely take a liberty with my captain. The author takes a liberty that is just so not what I was expecting. But I like the Foundry mission that is written for a captain, not the captain, not the author's captain. Because I'm not watching an episode, right? It's not me that I'm watching on the screen when I'm watching TNG. It's not my character that I'm watching when I'm watching the original series. I'm watching Kirk. I'm watching Picard. Exactly. So I don't give a rats patootie what they do i mean yeah i give a rats patootie what they do to them but me personally i'm not going to have that visceral reaction when somebody takes my character in a direction that i don't want them to take you bring it up that is exactly what christine told me during my last conversation with her that fan fiction writers are used to placing the reader inside the head of a character they created fan fiction writers may not realize that game development and game design is completely different from that. Game development and game design, especially for Star Trek Online, is you have to write for the player's character. It's not just about the captain, either. Some Foundry missions that I've played have a hard time giving a unique voice to other characters. And it's very difficult when a playwright sits down to write a play, is that the author has a voice in their head. And the playwright has to create a voice for this character and not just a voice but a whole personality that comes to life on the stage so i can only imagine the hurdles that somebody's going to have to face when sitting down to do a foundry but some of the best foundry missions i've played really capture that very 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 well do you know how many episodes it took me to figure that out one after the one that i one played. because because <laughs> i got feedback if you listen to the people that play your stuff and then you really go back and examine it 
like play it with another captain on your account and like a different picture of the bridge officer pops up and it just does not make any sense for a Vulcan to say that. You know, on my other tune, a picture of a human bridge officer pops up because that's how I have the bridge officer slotted. But on this tune, I've got a Vulcan in that spot and that doesn't make any sense at all. It's something that is developed and learned through through coaching, through community. Um, through bad so, reviews. Bad, and, yeah, practice. Bad reviews. And, practice. and practice. And practice. And practice. Rehearsal, yeah. rehearsal, yeah. rehearsal. You know, it's an evolving, growing, living, breathing thing until finally it gets onto the foundry for everybody to play. I mean, no matter what, exactly. it just does take practice. It just does take practice. Well, the last word is, I think the best advice that came out of this conversation for foundry authors is, again, don't forget who you are writing for. Even though you may have a great personal story, remind yourself that if you were the captain and somebody else was playing this, what would your character want to be told? And how would you want that character to react with the NPCs you've created? So again, leave everything open and don't put a voice into the captain and watch your bridge officer's dialogue as well because you never know what science officer that player will have. All right. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us on this little impromptu discussion of Foundry and Star Trek Online and fan fiction in general. It was a very amazing conversation, I must say. And I'm inspired to get back into the Foundry and perhaps play a few more missions and then maybe get a few more books in my library. Well, I'll send you the first chapter of mine. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Terry, thank you so much. All right, Captains. Well, that wraps up this discussion of Star Trek Online News. Let's go ahead into our community spotlight segment with a Foundry review by Justin Lowmaster. Chivalry Bean reporting in with an officer report of the Foundry mission the Devil You Know by Valtris. The mission starts on Earth's space dock with Starfleet Admiral Woodhouse giving orders to track down a pirate named Brian Newman at a suspected location. Being the eager to help Starfleet captain you are, you'll jump to help and travel to Ryza, where Brian Newman is expected to be. After you install a new device on your ship at Woodhouse's command. The pros of the mission are story, a healthy dose of humor, and combat that adds flavor to the mission. The story is well crafted. Any parts I had misgivings about were not oversights by the author, but intentional plot points that come into play later. The dialogue is effective in progressing the plot. There isn't more than required, but what there is has enough substance to make it fit the story well. There is humor in both the dialogue and in the mission itself that poked a little bit of fun at a few things, even at Star Trek at Line itself, but keeps clear of breaking the fourth wall. The combat isn't particularly difficult played on normal. There was only one section that proved to be much of a challenge. However, the combat was in places that made sense and wasn't excessive. It worked for the story. Some areas that I had criticism about were forced dialogue choices for my captain, and some bits of the story weren't accurate to what I actually did in the game. The voice of your captain and crew, while consistent in the mission, are very specific. My captain said things that he would never say had I been given the choice. This can be remedied by providing options at each text box that reflect possible replies for different captains. However, once I realized there wasn't anything to be done about it, I just went with it. One thing that happened assumed I had performed an action, but I'd actually actively avoided it. Yet, the plot assumed I had done it. This can be remedied with triggers not related to story flow and provide the chance to even reward the player for paying attention and avoiding the pitfall. I already let the author know of the details and am omitting them here to keep it spoiler free. The Devil You Know has a well-defined plot, humorous dialogue, and has a good variety of action and math. It is a fun-to-play mission and well worth your time to experience it. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. 
All right, Captains, coming to us via the Priority One Podcast website at the comment section for episode 139. Sean Newboy writes, wonderful episode, everyone. Midnight Shadow writes, Elijah, if you wanted the Helmsman trait, you should have attended the community pub quiz before the show. You could have won one of those that the SCC fleet gave away. I know, I know. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have attended, but now before the shows, uh, I am at school. And we also hear from Tawani. Elijah, I couldn't agree with you more about the Foundry. Also, I'm in the same boat with, if it's not canon, I don't follow it. I guess I'm OCD, and that's how I fly with all the sci-fi I love, Star Trek, Star Wars, etc. Oh well, I want the best STO game possible, so if the Foundry takes away from it, then get rid of it so the staff can focus more in the game. Uh-huh, I see, I see. Well, uh, we go over to Twitter. No, it's all right, we go back to Twitter, and this is where the SmackDown comes, because Green Dragoon and Hippie John and Gen X 89 our own Alex Calderwood, just dogpile Elijah as a counterpoint to Tawani. Elijah's opinions on the Foundry were not welcome. There were threats made about the fate of a fictional Ensign Elijah and various other smack-talking and whatnot, but some interesting points were made about canon, and it got me thinking about the use of dev time and Foundry author time and player time, and this is what I was thinking. A lot of the weaknesses of fan-developed missions, fan characters, is that they really, really, really want you, the reader, to like their characters. They work really hard to make you like the people and believe that they can do these awesome exploits and amazing things that the authors write for their characters to do. I can see where that would be a little disconcerting for people that are used to watching programs where a writer writes an episode based on guidelines that were written by a series creator or a producer that keep characters realer than maybe a single author can be expected to do with their own darlings that they've made. I can see that, and I can see a difference in some fan-created fiction where they really want you to like the character, and some fan-created fiction where they just want you to think about the character. So I can see people's point, but I also don't want people to be discouraged from trying the fan fiction to see which authors can pull it off. The whole point of writing a story that people read and like and listen to is that they get invested in it, and if you don't have a character that people can be invested in, it's just not going to work. And you don't know if you're going to be invested in a character unless you try it. And I just worry that people who have a built-in bias towards the Mary Sue, you know, bias against the Mary Sue characters, the ones that are overpowered, the ones that are just, that can do no wrong, the ones that have all the solutions to everything built in and they can, you know, leap tall buildings at single bound. Keep trying it, people. I truly believe that Cryptic will at some point include a better discovery tool so that if you're wanting to play a mission like, oh, I don't know, the Overture series that has good characters and lots of story and stuff, you can find that and you will be able to know for sure that this is a type of story I want to play, this is the kind of stuff I want to see, and if I want to just get down to business and blow some things up, because this is a video game and a random number generator interface, and I want things to go boom on my screen, I can play that kind of mission. They have got to get the discovery of the Foundry missions right, and they need to put the data up front. The number of damage points, the number of mob spawning, the number of dialogue boxes, they've got to put the data out front so people can find the things they want to play try the stuff they want to try and accept or reject it once they find those things. That's what's got to happen with the Foundry. Well, Captains, that wraps up feedback for episode 140. Don't forget you can reach out to us via email at incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the comments section for episode 140 on PriorityOnePodcast.com Well, that wraps up episode 140, recorded live on TrekRadio.net. Remember, we've moved our Thursday night live recordings on Trek Radio to 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, and we're looking forward to seeing you on our live stream. Captains, we're looking for new writers and bloggers. Join our team as a guest blogger on PriorityOnePodcast.com and have your writings seen. If you have other skills you believe could enhance our content, then reach out to us via email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. As you all know, we love hearing from you, our loyal listeners. If you have a suggestion, idea, or topic for any of our segments, or if you have general feedback about the episode, our email address is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you in iTunes as well. Give us a review out there. Let us know how we're doing in the comments section, and we'll get our iTunes rating up. 
Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast and give us a like. Or you can check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. Priority One is brought to you by the generous donations of listeners like you. We don't have any tote bags, but you can visit our cafe, press store, and get a coffee mug like the one that went to Australia with Woody Valley. Please visit PriorityOnePodcast.com to find out how you can help support the show. A very special thanks to James Kerwin, Kipley Brown, and Chase Masterson for speaking with us about their latest film project, R.U.R. Thanks to the entire team behind PriorityOnePodcast.com. Additionally, audio editing and engineering for this episode of Priority One Podcast was brought to you by Nighthammer Sound Productions. And thanks to Chris Watts, the composer of our theme music. A very special thanks to our sponsor, Sayulita.com. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, and our listeners. Without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. Engage. Hello, captains, and you're listening. I don't know what you're listening to. <laughs> right. You get commander level. You've got yeah. the uh, lieutenant commander level, lieutenant, and then... There we go, lieutenant. I was missing lieutenant. I was missing lieutenant. That's the one I was lieutenant, missing for. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. There he is. Do you want to restart? I am. I'm going to restart. I got thwarted okay, by the right. wilds. Yes. You were... Th- <laughs> God. Because... Hold on. Wait. I, hold on. I have, a pl- I have a thought. Wait. Okay. So- okay. Sorry. 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 <laughs> Terry's like, I love it when he's cranky. Catch the that's, thought. Hel- that's hilarious. Catch the thought. Catch the thought. I'm right so, here. I'm here to catch the thought. Ooh, I did that unscripted. Eat that, Tony. I'm so Ugh. proud. You did good. You're, prof- you're a pro. You're like a podcaster master. On that note, I would like to end this discussion with the following. On Friday after the show, I opened a lockbox and got a Jem'Hadar Dreadnought. <laughs> <laughs> Making this entire discussion more or less irrelevant. Uh. <laughs> you won the lottery. You won the lockbox lottery. But I didn't want the ship. I didn't want the so ship. So sell it on the exchange and buy your trait that you wanted, your genetic or your sequencer, your, your inspiration leader, your helmsman. No, I gave it to somebody that I knew was going to appreciate it. Aren't you nice? And I knew would appreciate the fact that he owed me one. Did you give to Elliot? Um... I don't want to talk about who I gave it to, but...